people need to recognize our mutual interdependence, that what car we buy or how we build our houses or what food we put in ourselves or also how we consume. All these acts are acts that have an impact on everybody. I'm your host, Adam Met, and today we're chatting with Dr. David Lehrer, the Director of International Development at the Arava Institute for Environmental Studies. David moved to Israel from the U.S. in 1978, becoming a member of Kibbutz Kitura, the cooperative living space on which the Arava Institute is located. In 2001, he became Executive Director of the Institute, which brings together students from neighboring countries to solve environmental issues affecting the entire region. Just this year, David got his PhD in geography and environmental development and became the director of international development at the Institute. We talk about 2,000-year-old dates, solar energy in Israel, and other incredible projects. A quick reminder that we're planting a tree for every person who subscribes to this podcast, so make sure to hit that subscribe button. And without further ado, here is David Lehrer on Planet Reimagined. David, welcome. There are very few topics in the world that are more polarizing than Israel. And I want to really dig deep into the relationships between environmentalism, community building, and how you see all of this as a pathway to peace. But just to ground ourselves specifically in Israel, can we start by talking a little bit about what a kibbutz is? Because it's pretty central to the narrative of what we're going to talk about today. Sure. So a kibbutz is a communal settlement originally based almost exclusively on agricultural branches where we live as a community together according to the basic philosophy from each according to their ability to each according to their needs. Most kibbutzim have evolved into more industrialized or business-oriented and less focused specifically on agriculture. And also kibbutzim in Israel, many of them, the majority of them, in fact, have moved slightly away from their original communal roots. But the kibbutz I live on, Kibbutz Tura, which is where the Aravai Institute is located, is still a very traditional kibbutz, and we have not gone through a privatization process. So cooperative living is a thing that's, I wouldn't say very well known in the U.S., but it's understood as something that exists. What's different about Israel and the type of cooperative living as compared to the rest of the world? Well, I would say, first of all, it's kind of a historical difference in the sense that the kibbutz movement, these communes, were not a fringe element of society in Israel. They actually were a very central part of the building of the state of Israel. They were a tool for government policy the government was able to send young groups of people off to very tough living circumstances, often on the border, often under harsh agricultural conditions, harsh climatic conditions, and were able to send them as groups and to establish in a relatively quick manner small communities. For example, the Kibbutz Kutura, where I live, where I'm a member and have been living here since 1978, was founded in 1973 on the border with Jordan at a time 
when there were very small and sparse population in the Arava Valley where the kibbutz is located. And it was founded specifically to help populate this sparse area in order to prevent the possibility of the city of Eilat, which is Israel's most southern city, being cut off from the rest of the country. And you can see that just from that, this was a commune in a sense, but being used for military strategic policy purposes by the Israeli government. So you moved there in the 70s. You grew up in the United States, right? Correct. So the lifestyle, was it something very specific that you moved there for? What about this type of living drew you to Israel and the kibbutz? First of all, I grew up in the United States. I grew up in North Carolina, and I grew up in a youth organization called Young Judea, which was very active, and it was sort of how I connected to my Jewish identity. It was a Jewish youth organization. Through our summer camp experience, through our throughout the year conventions and conclaves and meetings and stuff, it was all very much a part of this sort of socialist, communal Jewish lifestyle. When I was 17, because of my experience in the youth organization in Young Judea, I decided to come to Israel and to volunteer on a kibbutz, which I did in 1973. I spent a summer on Kibbutz Tzor'ah, which is near Jerusalem. I fell in love with Israel. I fell in love with kibbutz. I said, this is what I want to do with my life. And then five years later, I moved back to Kibbutz Ketorah, which was founded by this youth organization that I was a member of, together with other members of Young Judea, we moved together. And because I was attracted to the idea of pioneering, of also fit in very well with my own values, connecting to community, connecting to nature, equality, and socialism as an important part of my value system. So this value system is something that's central to what's going to be our entire conversation today. And this next question that I'm going to ask you could take hours to talk about. But briefly, obviously, peace in the Middle East and Africa is a local issue. It's a global issue. But I'd love to hear a little bit about your philosophy on the role that sustainability and environmentalism plays in peacekeeping, specifically in the region where you are. You know, the environment can't wait for peace between Israelis and Palestinians. And Working together on environmental issues that are of mutual concern for everybody in the region builds relationships that can be a foundation for peace. So for over you know, 25 years, the Arava Institute has brought together Jews and Arabs, Israelis, Palestinians, Jordanians, also internationals, in order to teach that nature knows no borders. There are many organizations in the region that try and bring people together sort of to build peace, to talk about peace. The problem with that is that as soon as there's no peace, as soon as something political happens or something connected to the security situation in the region, everybody kind of throws up their hands and say, oh, we can't talk now about that. We have to take a step back. You know, and at the Arvai Institute, the exact opposite happens because what brings us together, what binds us together is not some kind of kumbaya idea of peace and we all have to love each other, but really enlightened self-interest. Whatever we may think politically, whatever we may think about religion or borders or refugees or occupation or terrorism or all the things that are kind of hot-button subjects, when it comes to the environment, we share the same air, 
we share the same water, we share the same ecosystems. The only way you can protect those things which your life depends on and your lifestyle depends on is to work with your neighbor to make sure that they're protected. Can you give me a few examples of what the Arva Institute does to help bring these neighbors together? Because I'm sure for people who are around the world listening, saying it is one thing like, okay, we're going to bring Israelis and Palestinians together to work on environmental issues. But I'd love for them to hear about some of the specific projects that you're working on that show clear results that, yes, we can get these two different places to work together over these really clear, concrete issues. You know, the fact that we have consistently run an academic program, which brings Israelis, Palestinians, Jordanians together with international students, an academic program that is in partnership with Ben-Gurion University that provides academic credit for courses in environmental policy, ecology, earth sciences, sustainable agriculture, renewable energy, religion and the environment, a variety of subjects that really give students the tools they need to become environmental leaders and professionals for when they go back to their home communities. And the result is that we now have a network of graduates of the RFI Institute throughout the region, over a thousand who care about the environment, who are professionals, who have the tools to work on the environment and have the cross-border network to enable cross-border cooperation. So that's really the first big achievement. But from there, we've taken our scientific studies, our work that we've done in renewable energy, in sustainable agriculture, in cross-border water management, and implemented them on the ground. For example, for many years, one of the main projects that the Aravao Institute worked on through our Center for Transboundary Water Management was the issue of transboundary water, water that crosses borders. Israel and Palestine share aquifers, the mountain aquifers between Israel and the West Bank and the coastal aquifers between Israel and Gaza. And uh, whatever you do on one side of the border impacts the other. So the Hebron River, it's an ephemeral river, which means that it only flows at certain times of the year during the rainy season, normally, but now flows all year long because of wastewater that's dumped into it, both by Israelis and by Palestinians, seeps into the wastewater, flows from the West Bank through the central Negev down to Gaza, eventually into the Mediterranean Sea, polluting everybody's aquifers, polluting everybody's riverbeds. So the Aravai Institute has been working for years now, monitoring both sides of the border. And because our students are Palestinians and Jordanians, we're able to send them out to work in the West Bank, monitoring the quality of water, monitoring where this wastewater is coming from, from sewage, from rock quarries, from olive presses, and able to identify these specific pollutants and able to suggest policies to try and manage that. So we have monitoring on the Israeli side, we have monitoring on the Palestinian side, and we're the only organization in the region that has data sets that cover the whole area, so that even the Israeli Drainage Authority, which is responsible for making sure that these areas remain clean, comes to us and says, look, you guys have the data, we don't, can you share it with us? Our Track 2 Environmental Forum, which was established specifically to try and take what we've learned and what we teach in the academic sphere and implement it on the ground, bottom up, in order to show the policymakers that there are partners for peace. There are millions of partners for peace. 
And we prove it every day by working together with our Palestinian partners on wastewater treatment systems, on water projects, on renewable energy projects in Gaza and in the West Bank. Over the past year, the Arava Institute has worked with our Palestinian partners to bring drinking water machines to Gaza. Gaza's drinking water is like 98% undrinkable, according to the World Health Organization, pollutants because of salinization. So we've worked with uh, WaterGen, which is an Israeli technology company that produces an atmospheric water generator that takes water out of the atmosphere, out of the humidity in the atmosphere, turns it into high-quality drinking water. And partnering with communities in Gaza and with our Palestinian partners and with WaterGen, we were able to bring two drinking water machines into two municipalities in Gaza this past year. In the West Bank, we're working together with the Palestinian Water Authority and the Israeli Civil Administration to design a trunk line that will bring treated wastewater that can be used in agriculture from an area near Ramallah, which has wastewater which can't be used there because there's no agriculture in that area, down to the Jericho Valley where farmers are going to be able to use it to produce fruits and vegetables with treated wastewater. And this is going to be a major project that we're working on in complete partnership with both sides. So I want to pull out two things from what you just talked about. The first is that a few times on this podcast, we've talked about the role of academia and the way academia sits next to policy, but also very much separated from policy, because in a lot of academic institutions around the world, they want to maintain their own independence and they kind of refuse to translate their work in a way that's most effective for advocates and for policymakers. So what you're doing really kind of builds that bridge between the academic world and the world of real action in making policy and advocacy. Do you think that this is a model that can be adopted in other places, or do you think academia as a whole is too far gone and too separated from the policymakers of the world? Yeah, look, I think that we are a kind of model. I don't know that every university or every academic institute could adopt our model. But I do think that there's a lot of room there. And I think there are a lot of academics, there are a lot of universities that are looking to see how they can have a wider impact than just publishing another paper in another journal. But the Institute was founded, in a sense, by academic activists. Our founder was Professor Alon Tal, who is a professor at Tel Aviv University, but has been an environmental activist from the time he moved here to this country. And I think that that spirit has continued in the RFI Institute. We see ourselves not just as a think tank, but as a do tank. And we like to take what we are studying and what we are theorizing and bring it out into the field. We also want to be able to give the students that are studying here the tools to actually make a difference when they go back to their home communities. And so we have ready partners in the region from among our alumni and from our colleagues who are both in the academic world and practitioners to take the knowledge that we're developing in our centers for renewable energy or our center for transboundary water management and translate that into pilot projects and even commercial projects. We've had a number of commercial projects that have been spinoffs from the RFI Institute due to the 
originally academic work that was done at the Institute, but has now turned into applied research. And I want to talk about a couple of those in just a moment, but I wanted to mention first that I am very jealous of you because I believe that you just finished your PhD. Congratulations, first and foremost. That's amazing. I am just finishing up, but I'm always curious about people like yourself who continue their schooling while they're working on projects to bring their studies into reality. What is it that you did your PhD in? I did my PhD on creating an optimal economic model for nature conservation in Israel. I was looking at how do you decide basically what actions to take in order to conserve nature and to look at both the costs and the benefits. And how much of this was influenced by your work with Arva Institute? Certainly the interest in nature conservation was, of course, a major factor. I found it really interesting because my background was in management and economics, but in order to do this doctorate, I had to do kind of a deep dive into ecology, which I had not been exposed to before. So I took a lot of courses in ecology and I loved it. And I loved the fact that I was able to bring together two completely different disciplines and find a connection. Amazing. That's great. There are a few specific Arava Institute projects that I want to talk about because they seemed very strange and also very exciting at the same time. I read that you recently grew dates from Judean time, that's over 2,000 years ago, by sprouting seeds that you found on an archaeological dig. First, can you tell us about this project and what's the purpose of it? This is absolutely an amazing story, and it started at least 10 years ago, I would say. My colleague, Dr. Elaine Soloway, who also happens to be a member of my kibbutz, has been doing research into crops and plants that are appropriate for arid lands that can help countries deal with desertification and can bring back areas, ecosystems to life. So Dr. Soloway runs our Center for Sustainable Agriculture. And about 10 years ago, a colleague of hers from Hadassah Hospital, Dr. Sarah Salone, came to her and said, look, I have access to date seeds that were found on Masada, which is an archaeological dig in Israel. We believe they're 2,000-year-old date seeds, and they've been sitting in an archaeologist's desk in a clay jar where he found them, and he's not doing anything with them. Would you be willing to try and sprout them, see if they could sprout? So Elaine thought, well, that's crazy. I mean, these things are 2,000 years old. How could it be that they would sprout? But she did a bit of research, and she found that there was an incident that happened during World War II at the British Museum when it was bombed. And there are eyewitness accounts that thousand-year-old wheat seeds sprouted, a sign that perhaps ancient seeds could be sprouted. And she thought, well, she had been given six seeds by Dr. Salone, and she tried different methods of heat and water on each one to see which method would work. Finally, one of them sprouted, a palm, date palm that we call Methuselah, after the oldest man in the Bible. And we planted it, or she planted it in her hothouse, and after a few years, brought it out and planted it at the Research and Visitors Park of the RFI Institute, right outside our office. And anybody who comes to visit us, of course, can meet the date tree that was sprouted from a 2,000-year-old date. We did carbon dating, by the way, and found that it was true it's 2,000 years old. Date trees or date palms are either male or female. And we were all hoping, even though we had named this palm tree Methuselah, we were all hoping that Methuselah would actually turn out to be a girl. 
and would produce dates. That was not the case. Methuselah turned out to live up to his name. But more recently, Dr. Salone came back to Elaine with this time six more date seeds. And this time, Elaine, knowing what to do, was actually able to sprout all six date trees. And we now have planted them in our park as well. And these dates are a variety of dates that had gone extinct. And Dr. Soloway and Dr. Salone have managed to bring them back to life. You know, when you read in the Bible about Israel as the land of milk and honey, the honey that you're reading about is not honey from bees. It's actually silan, a type of honey that is made out of dates. And that's what this variety is. It's the original Judean date from the Bible that you read about. Wow. Not to put a downer on the next question, but that was incredibly inspiring. But unfortunately, the next question I have, I want to talk about animal waste. And My not favorite that it's not subject. as exciting. Uh, don't say that. I love to talk about animal waste. I'm thrilled. <laughs> um, we, we Believe me, I never thought in my life that I would talk so much about waste, but it's a big part of my day, every day almost. <laughs> well, I will leave that to you. I'm glad that at this moment, it's not a huge part of my day, but you know, who knows what the future will bring. But can you tell us a little bit about the biogas project? And I believe it's an alumni-focused project that uses animal waste. One of our graduates, when she first came to the Aravai Institute, Ilana Mualam, came after having sort of traveled around the world. You know, she had done the typical Israeli thing, been in the army, left the army, went on to, to travel around the world, got back after having worked in environmental causes. And she came back to Israel determined to study bottlenose dolphins and how to preserve them, how to conserve bottlenose dolphins. And one of the things we do at the Arvai Institute is we spend some time with our students teaching sustainability in the desert. We spend a night in an unrecognized Bedouin village that is kind of a squatter village, essentially, a village that's not been formally recognized by the Israeli government, therefore lacks most of the basic services like electricity, water, wastewater disposal, waste disposal, all the basics, they lack them. She got back from that trip to the Institute and said, forget the bottlenose dolphins. I want to devote my studies to studying the Bedouins. She then finished the first part of her program, was accepted to Ben Gurion University and continued to study at the Aravai Institute. She spent six months living in an unrecognized village with a family, learned Arabic, and basically in that time began to try and develop what her proposal would be for her thesis. She realized that one of the big problems that the communities, these unrecognized villages face is disposing of waste. They have lots of cattle and sheep, which creates these piles of animal waste, which they don't have anything to do with. They have no way to get rid of it, so they burn it, which causes all kinds of health problems, including little kids getting burnt, but also just lots of disease from it. And so she came back to the Institute and began to work on looking for a solution and partnered with Mazen Zawabi, another a student at the Aravai Institute. And together they kind of searched the world and they found that in China, there are millions of farmers who basically take their animal waste and compost it, capture the methane gas from the compost and use it for heating, cooking and lighting. So Mazen and Ilana went to China, to the People's Republic of China's Biodigester Institute, where they spent three months studying biodigester technology. 
They came back to the Arava Institute, finished their master's degree, built some pilot projects here at the Arava Institute. And then another graduate of the Arava Institute, Yair Teller, who had spent his time working on biodigesters in South America, came and developed a pilot project, which we then tested in a number of Bedouin villages around the Negev. And eventually he established Home Biogas, a commercial version of that biodigester that was developed here at the Arava Institute, which takes animal waste and vegetable waste, composts it, turns it into clean burning methane gas, which is then can be used for cooking and for heating. And the compost that's left over can be used in agriculture. That's absolutely incredible. We had another guest on the podcast last season. His name was Leroy, and he's from Kenya, and he built a toilet that connected directly to a system that sat outside people's houses and ended up bringing clean burning methane to their kitchens. So this seems like an idea that is growing and having more use and more popularity throughout the region. And so it seems amazing that you're able to take this idea and then scale it to make it so much bigger. Well, yeah, this company is hopefully taking off and is now selling biodigesters all over the world. Amazing. So this is one example, but I also want to talk about another example of doing research at the Arva Institute and then turning it into for-profit companies. So the Arva Power Company and Global Sun Partners, it's a solar panel project. And so I'm curious what the relationship is between the solar energy initiatives and the research that you do at Arava, and then how that became a for-profit company that's growing. It was about 12 years ago in our region, the Arava Valley, where the Institute is located, felt that we needed to go beyond agriculture. Our whole economic life here was based on cows and dates and vegetable crops. But it was very clear to us that in the long term, that agriculture in general was not going to be providing the kind of job opportunities that most of the people in the region were looking for. And we needed to develop other areas of industry. And this area happens to have some of the highest levels of solar radiation in the world. And we have lots of land. And so little by little, the region as a whole adopted solar energy and sustainability as a way to develop the region financially and demographically and socially and so forth. So sort of in parallel to that, the RFI Institute sort of seeing the writing on the wall said, okay, we need a, a center that focuses research on that. And we created a Center for Renewable Energy and Energy Conservation, together with the Toronto Jewish Federation, which was a major sponsor at the time of the establishment of this center. The first head of that center was Dr. Tarek Abu Hamad, who is still the head of that center and is now going to be replacing me as the executive director. So we were already doing some research into solar panels and how to basically leverage the most abundant resource that we have in the region, which is the sun. And I was in the United States at a conference trying to raise some money. And I met an old friend of mine from this organization that I told you I grew up in, Young Judea, Yosef Abramovitz. And I met Yossi. I hadn't seen him in a few years. He and I were in camp together. And uh, he said to me, David, uh, I didn't know this. He said, David, I'm going to be spending a sabbatical at Kibbutz Ketura. And I said, well, that's great. And he said, yeah, but I need an office. I don't have an office. And I said, we're now expanding our offices 
So I'm going to build you an office. I'll rent it to you for two years and get back my investment. And then I'll throw you out. And he said, great, good deal. <laughs> so, so Yossi and his whole family come to Israel and come to Kibbutz Keturah. And this is August, where 45 degrees centigrade is a cool day in the Arava. So he gets out of the car in the middle of August, in the middle of the day, on Kibbutz Keturah, and his skin starts to burn. And he goes, wow, this solar radiation is really strong. He said, I guess solar energy is a major part of Israel's energy production. And at the time, which was around 2008, that was absolutely not true. Israel, at that point, had not gone into solar energy in any real way. There had been a few early attempts in the 60s and 70s, but there was no real support from the government because at that time, at least, solar was still quite pricey. And so Yossi went to a course that was run by our region to learn about solar energy entrepreneurship. He got very excited about it. He gave up on his other plans to write and to do whatever else he was going to do on his sabbatical. He walks into the office of the manager of the kibbutz, Ed Hofflin, the business manager, and he said, I've got an idea. Let's start a solar energy company. And being that we're a fairly entrepreneurial kibbutz, we agreed and established uh, Arava Power Company in the offices that I had built for Yossi Sabbatical. Even today, we still call the office the Arava Power Company, the APC meeting room. I ended up being there for four years, but finally became a big enough company to leave. Built the first five megawatt solar field in Israel, became Israel's leading solar energy developer in the next 10 years. I think they have about 130 megawatts that they own, and they have a whole other bunch of projects that they're working on in different fields connected to energy. And during that time, by the way, the Institute was able to help by doing some of the original studies on solar panels to look at what was the best technology to use. We continue to do research onto solar panels. Many companies will bring us their solar panels and have us test them because we have such extreme circumstances. But today, the Arava Valley, which is this sort of strip of land about 60 miles north of Eilat, producing during the day 100% of its solar energy needs. And we're now working on a systems of uh, energy storage so that we can then go to producing our completely all our energy needs and to be an energy exporter by exporting the sun to other parts of Israel, as well as potentially Jordan, Egypt, uh, Saudi Arabia. This is incredible. And everything we've talked about today has been so diverse. Now, the UN put out these 17 sustainable development goals, which focus on all these different areas. And all of the projects hit so many of them, from partnerships and peace building to water, energy, agriculture, life on land. It's incredible. And when I talk to other organizations, they're all hyper-focused on something really specific. Why did you decide at the Arva Institute to say, we're going to tackle everything all at the same time? Well, again, going back to what I said earlier, the environment can't wait for peace between Israelis and Palestinians. And we believe that working together with our Palestinian and Jordanian neighbors, we are actually building foundations for peace. And so the Aravai Institute was founded in order to advance cross-border environmental cooperation in the face of political conflict. So while we are completely aware of the conflict, 
And while we don't hide from the conflict, in fact, one of the key elements of the program is the Peace Building Leadership Seminar, where we talk about the elephant in the room, where we bring the students together to talk about war and occupation and terrorism and all the things that bring up the emotions. And those sessions often don't end very quietly. They can sometimes end with people screaming and yelling at each other and stomping out the door. But what makes the Arvine unique is the fact that we are located here on Kibbutz Keturah, which is in the middle of the desert, in the middle of nowhere. So they really have no place to go. But doing that, we are able to address our common environment. And our environment is made up of all of these different elements. It's made up of ecosystems and of water resources and of air and of the sun. And these are all mutual. These are all things that belong to everybody. And so our focus is really how do we work together to protect the environment? And when you give people this kind of playground, you know, this big area where you can do what you want, and we give you the tools and we empower you to do that, we find that people's creativity comes out and students just go where they want to go and they take it to where they want to take it. And we see our job as empowering the next generation to be able to do that. That's incredible. To wrap up, I actually want to read a quote of yours back to you because I found it really interesting and inspiring, especially in the time that we're living in right now. Vaccination, like mask wearing, is not only an act of self-interest, but it is also an act of civic responsibility required from an overwhelming majority of us in order to stop the spread of the virus. Those of us on the political left or in the environmental movement who often declare our concern for the threat climate change poses to humanity must lead by personal example. Like climate change, the pandemic is an unseen threat that can only be mitigated by everyone doing their part. So when you say everyone doing their part in just the last few minutes here, what would you say is the most impactful way for people listening to do their part and move the world in a more sustainable direction? That's a really good question. I I mean, I would say this is that we all have to recognize, first of all, our mutual dependence on each other. You know, what happens in our neighboring country, what happens in our neighboring state, these things impact everybody. Even now in the global world we live in, what happens halfway across the world obviously impacts us today. The horrific situation that's happening in India right now, this is not something that it's India's problem. It's all our problem. So I think that on every level, people need to recognize our mutual interdependence and that we need to live our lives that way. Uh, We need to live our lives in a way that we recognize that what car we buy or how we build our houses or what food we put in ourselves or also how we consume. All these acts are acts that have an impact on everybody. Perhaps it's because I've been living most of my adult life on a kibbutz where We all very much understand that we're mutually dependent on each other, that if I decide not to get up in the morning and go to work, that's not just my problem. That's also everybody's problem because that's less money for the community. So that's the world we live in today. The world we live in today is really one big kibbutz. And everything we do doesn't just impact our own lives or our family's lives. It impacts our neighbors. It impacts our community. It impacts the world around us. So that's the most important thing that I think people need to do is to think about the world as one big kibbutz and start acting like it. What an amazing and inspiring way to end our conversation. Thank you so, so much for taking the time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Adam. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to support this podcast, please visit sustainablepartnersinc.org slash donate. Since we are a nonprofit, 
any little bit of funding helps us to bring you more episodes like this one. Today's episode would not have been possible without our amazing team. Producer and editor, Shelby Kaufman. And associate producer and engineer, Sophie Yu. I'm your host, Adam Met, and thanks for listening to Planet Reimagined.